Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Amen. Well, good morning. It is great to see all of you here this morning, and it is good for us to be together. Amen? I think sometimes we, we miss just recognizing that it is His grace that has caused us to be here together today and the opportunity we have to lift our voices together during a time of worship. Uh, praise to Him serves to unify our hearts as we consider just how good He is as we look to the things that we ought to be looking toward in this life. And, uh, and so it's good for us to be together, and I trust that it pleases Him. Well, we're going to jump into the Word here this morning. Last Sunday, which was the first Sunday in Advent, so you know, again, if, if Advent in, in many respects being a man-made tradition, we've established different traditions around this season and things to cover on each Sunday, and, and we won't necessarily follow that pattern, but it is this particular season. It is the season of Advent, the opportunity for us to, to just look at elements of the, the Christmas story as we celebrate that holiday. Uh, And so last Sunday was the the first Sunday in Advent, but we did in that time bring our study of Romans to a close, which is hard to believe. And so uh, many of you reached out to me this last week, and I love it. I love the excitement about, you know, where we're going. And some of you reached out just to say, hey, what's, what's the next book? Where are we going? What are we studying? And I will say this morning, before we proceed into a verse-by-verse study of a new book, the next one we will jump into 1st and 2nd Corinthians after the holiday, uh, We're going to shift gears a little bit here this morning, and for the next three weeks, we're going to do, I guess you could call it more of a a topical study, Um, but really it's just as we seek to unpack the scriptures, we're just not going to get very far. (laughs) We're going to look in depth into a few verses uh, and just half of one verse here this morning, and so it's going to feel a little bit different, going to look a little bit different. Um, We're going to try it out. If you hate it, you can tell me you hate it, and uh, and we'll be in 1 Corinthians before too long, right? But... um, Here's what I think. With the opportunity with the Christmas holiday before us, I think there's a chance for us here over these next three weeks to delve a little bit more into the theology of Christmas. To not take for granted that we know the answers to some of the things that we often think about this time of year, questions we may ask. And so that's my heart, and I pray that over the next few weeks we grow in our awe of what God has done, how he has worked in the past, how he has orchestrated events in history to bring about his perfect plan of salvation. And so oftentimes in the Sundays leading up to Christmas and really at any point around the holiday, uh, we're often considering or even hearing some of the more traditional passages of Scripture, uh, the virgin birth narrative in Matthew 1, the account of the wise men in Matthew 2, even the songs, of course. We've dusted off some Christmas songs this morning. But the thing about some of those songs and even some of those passages is you could sing them all year long if you didn't just feel like it was weird, you know, to be singing Oh, holy night in summer, you know, but, uh, but you could because of, what it's de- what, because of what it's declaring, because of what it's stating, the truth of what God has done for us. And so, of course, we have many passages that we consider this time of year, but uh, I'm going to look this morning and over the next three weeks to an often overlooked Christmas passage. And so I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we'll read together this morning verses 1 through 5 together. 
in Galatians chapter 4. And here as we consider this particular passage in a three-part series over the next three weeks, I would entitle this God's Perfect Plan. And so let's read together, beginning of verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. If you would agree with me once more, Lord, this is your word. We treasure it here this morning, Lord. We seek to exalt it, bless our time, Lord, as we consider it. And once more, Lord, by your spirit, give us understanding here today. Lord, help us as we make application in our own lives, as we glean, Lord, from this precious word of God. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now again, this passage may not be your traditional Christmas passage, but the fact is it is filled with theological truth for us to consider, especially at this time of year. I wonder, do you ever stop to consider the miraculous aspects of the Christmas story? Or for that matter, as you oftentimes, if you've grown up in the church, if, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you encounter various elements of the Christmas story and, and maybe you just sort of accept them. You just say, okay, yeah, this is the narrative. This is, this is what happened. But when somebody asks you to explain to them, well, tell me more about the incarnation. Tell me about God condescending from, from heaven and, and taking on flesh. Tell me about the, the timing of all of these events and the, the journey to Bethlehem. Maybe you find yourself going, well, you know what? That's a, that's a good question. And, and you can sort of tell the narrative, but maybe you, you're lost a little bit as to, as to how and, and, and why and, and when and, and what was it about uh, God's plan. And so this is part of what we're going to consider here as we look at this text, that Jesus would come at all. And then he came when he did and, and, and where he did. You ever wonder about those things? And so we're going to look at some of those things here and as I, as I said, hopefully grow in our appreciation for how God has moved throughout history. And so today we're going to look at the first part of verse 4, just the first half of verse 4, and see how Jesus' birth was at the perfect point in history Next Sunday, we'll look at the rest of verse 4, the second half of verse 4, and we'll see how Jesus was the perfect person to save us from our sins as we consider the incarnation. And then we'll look to verses 5 through 7 from there and see the perfect purpose that was Jesus' life and ministry on this earth. And so for those of you note takers and those who like alliteration, I'm helping you out on this one. God's perfect plan, the perfect point, perfect person and the perfect purpose so let's look again at first at the first part of verse four as paul writes but when the fullness of the time had come as you think about questions as you think about the the christmas story as a whole have you ever asked the question why was jesus born when he was 
Why that time? Why not in Genesis, there after the fall, when, when God promised that a Savior would come? Or why not uh, in exile, when the prophets were telling the people about their promised deliverance? Why not at, at any other time? Why this particular time? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 tells us that there is a time and season for everything under heaven. A specific time and season for everything under heaven. And here Paul writes, when the fullness of the time had come. This is another way of saying when the right time came. Or uh, as I read in other translations, when the proper time had come. What we need to understand is that our Creator God operates outside of the limits of time. And God, who is the beginning and the end, does not function within time and space haphazardly, but rather exactly as He plans. Now while we'll consider this morning various elements of what made this the perfect time, I hope that perhaps already the Spirit is moving on some of your hearts here today, maybe some of you who need to hear this this morning, that God's timing is always perfect. Just as it has been in history, so it is still today, even in your own life. In Genesis in chapter 3, verse 15, God said to the serpent, the devil, that he would put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of man, even there God said, look, here's what's going to happen. His plan of salvation, which was understood by God even before time began. Even before this time, God knew precisely what he would do and when that time would be. That event, when it would occur, when the Savior Jesus would come and defeat Satan. It's as if in the very beginning, however we can try to understand that, God put in his planner on this day. This event will occur. In the Film adaptation of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I know some of you, there's some big fans here. There's no doubt about that. The wizard, okay, now fingers are pointing and everything, right? The, the wizard in this story, Gandalf, who really serves as a picture of Christ, in the story he arrives in the Shire. This is the little hobbit town. Uh, but he arrives late, according to his friend Frodo. But Gandalf makes clear Frodo's error stating a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. This, su such can be said of our Lord, and it certainly can be said of his first advent, his first arrival, his first coming, that it was precisely when he meant it to be. In verse 4 here, once again, we read, but when the fullness of the time had come, Again, that, that when the right time came. But here we see this use of the word but, and, and what that does here is it connects us back to the previous verses, specifically in verse 3 where Paul wrote, Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. We see here that we were born under the law, 
That the law of Moses was given not as something that we could attain to, but rather as a tool, Paul calls it a schoolmaster, to help us to see that we were hopelessly lost in sin and in need of a Savior. And this Savior would come at a precise time so everyone would understand, listen, we are in sin, we need a Savior. And as it pertains to what the Word communicated, the Word of the Lord told of how He would come, we knew this. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah seven fourteen tells us, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. We knew how he would come. And, and the word also tells us of where he would be. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. We know how, we knew where, and the word tells us of why he would come. Once again, Genesis 3.15, to crush the head of Satan. Or Isaiah 59.20, to redeem his people. But less was given as to when. So what was it? about this point in time that made it so perfect. Now, there are several reasons that we could look to. We'll consider only a few of them here this morning, the first of which being people were spiritually hungry. They were hungry during this time. There were hints in Scripture of His arrival, and there were those who were in tune with what was happening, and they were beginning to speak of the coming of the Messiah with more boldness. And the desire amongst many to know more spoke to the fact that there was a spiritual hunger that made this a perfect point in history. And a variety of things contributed to this. First, there was incredible messianic expectation amongst the Jews. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, uh, it makes clear there that power, authority, would not pass from the hand of Judah until Messiah had come. There in Genesis 49.10, Messiah is referred to as Shiloh or peace. And so the religious leaders of the day had an understanding that they would retain power until the Messiah, until peace would come. Yet, they recognized that in this particular time, their power was waning. The power of the Jews was limited now as a Roman governor was placed in the land. We have evidence of this right there in Scripture as we see the account of them seeking the crucifixion of Jesus, that it wasn't up to them to decide, but they had to seek the authority of someone else. The Jewish leaders knew that this was happening. They were wrestling with the fact that power was slipping out of their hands, but yet they had not identified the Messiah, although he was right there before them. Further, the prophecies found in Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks prophecies, and we won't go into that as much here today, but, but there was prophecy in the Old Testament that when rightly understood could give them a good understanding of the, of the uh, general time in which the Messiah should come. And there were many who knew this, and so there was a sense that we're living in the age. We're living in this time when the Messiah should come. Secondly, there was a significant influence of Judaism throughout the Roman Empire. 
for a few hundred years at this point. Since 332 BC, when Alexander the Great had conquered Jerusalem, he had given permission to the Jews, and not just permission, he even encouraged them to move throughout the then known world. Centuries later then, there are Jewish people living throughout the land who have a belief in one God, the one true God of Israel. And so here now there's this influence throughout the land. You think that's just a coincidence that this leader at that particular time said to this particular people, hey, go ahead and move about. No. Now while most of the Roman Empire had a belief in many gods, they were polytheistic, there was also a growing attraction to the Jewish people and the specifics of their faith because they were claiming to have a covenant relationship with the one true all-powerful God of the universe. And so here it is, a people who it didn't take long to recognize that they had been miraculously protected, and they're claiming that they've got a relationship with the one God over all the world. That should be fairly appealing to someone, shouldn't it? I think it can even be appealing today. And so here you've got these people living throughout this land and they're beginning to attract. And and this goes back to that covenant relationship that God established with his people that was reinforced there in Deuteronomy that they would be a people who lived in a particular way that would cause people to go, wow, look at their life. Look at how God cares for them. Look at his faithfulness. Look how they serve him. Look how they treat other people. And so here people are beginning to be attracted to this in various ways. And this had even more influence because many of the pagan religions at this time were beginning to fail under the conquests of Rome because for people who had long put their faith and trust in false gods, in numerous false gods, and suddenly they find themselves conquered by another power, they have to ask the question, hey, this little idol that I've suggested would protect me failed. So what now? Suddenly there's a, there's a desire to know more about this God who has protected his people throughout history. So all of these things are beginning to happen. And then, and then finally, within this same vein, there were many mystery religions of this particular age that themselves emphasized a savior God who delighted in sacrifice and, and, and their, their understanding of these concepts were creating a receptivity to the gospel. Even the Romans were awaiting a savior king. It was around this time of Jesus' birth that the Roman poet Virgil wrote these words about Caesar Augustus, saying, this one will be the divine king of which the world has waited. There was a hunger for it. And so when John the Baptist came to the scene preaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, people were listening. But it wasn't just the perfect point spiritually, it was also the perfect point culturally. What do I mean by that? Well, while Rome had conquered from a military perspective, and we'll consider that in a moment, Greece had conquered culturally. There was now a common form of the Greek language throughout the land. It was the primary trade language. It was spoken throughout the empire. It made it possible to communicate the gospel to many different people groups through one common language that was not there prior to this time. In July of 356 B.C., when Alexander the Great was born, he was, he was raised up uh, under the, the, the tutelage of Aristotle, and at the age of 20, he became the king of Macedonia. And he had a vision, it was said, to Hellenize the entire world. 
That is to influence it all with, through the Greek culture. And by the time uh, he died at the age of 30, he had introduced the Greek culture and language as far as India. Now, you may be asking, okay, well, what, what's the big deal with that? Why does this really matter? Well, what happened there back in Genesis? After the flood, when, when, when the people who were on the earth became a great people once again and, and sought to begin to build a tower to the heavens such that they could be God. Well, God came and He confused their language. No different than expulsion from the garden. It can seem vindictive on God's part, but actually it was protection. But then throughout history, you've got people groups who are all over the land who speak different languages. But now there's a common language. And then let's jump ahead to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21, where we read, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word. Luke goes on to write there in Acts, they spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. For the first time in history, there was the ability to take this truth that was unfolding to the ends of the earth. This common culture made it the perfect point in history so that God's perfect plan could be communicated throughout the world. And the ability for them to travel with the word was significant as well and shows us that it was not just the perfect point uh, from a cultural perspective, but also politically. In Mark 12, verse 17, we read, And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are what? God's. Despite the fact that the Jewish people long protested the taxes that they paid to Rome, none of you can relate to that, right? The amazing thing was that even this, even this thing that they no doubt hated, was being used by God to bring about the fullness of the time. How? Well, because what was happening was the, the, the building of a world suited for the spread of the gospel. It was known as the Pax Romana. We talked about this on Wednesday night in our study of Revelation, the Peace of Rome. You could say it with a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek because it was certainly accomplished through anything but peaceful means. But the end result as Rome's conquest expanded were policies that created the right conditions for people to move about the world. Rome built a 250,000-mile system of roads that connected the world. And get this, over 50,000 miles were paved and illuminated. Now, for us driving around here these days, we ought to go, wow, this is pretty impressive. And it was relatively safe to travel the Roman Empire. In fact, even in time, it became safe to, to travel on the seas. They were dealing with piracy. They were dealing with criminals along the roadway. The Roman army recruited soldiers from all over the land. And, and, and as they did, they sent them to different places. And here are these guys who are coming with a monotheistic influence, right? And they're going to the ends of the earth. It's said that by 312 A.D., one in ten people in the Roman Empire claimed to be Christians. These are just a handful of examples that help us to see that the fullness of the time had come. It was a perfect point in history for God to accomplish His perfect plans. He sent his son Jesus at a time when people were hungry, when the culture was conducive, and when the political pump was primed. 
And should we be surprised by this? No. Of course, the obvious answer is no. We should not be surprised by a sovereign God who is over all things, who is the beginning and the end, that He is able to sort of enter into time and space to bring about these events. Yet, so often I think we are surprised. Even still, we struggle with God's perfect timing, don't we? We can look back and we can say, oh yeah, Jesus was born at the right time. God did this and he did this and he did this. But then there's something in your life that you're waiting on the Lord for and suddenly you think, Lord, don't you know? I got, I got one amen up here. Is this not what we do? Is this just me? We suddenly begin to think that maybe God needs a little bit of help on what time things need to happen. When this needs to be accomplished by. You know, God, if, this could, if we could take care of this today, this would work really well for my plan. That's how I tend to function. Pastor Jimmy, during the announcement, says men, and here's another reminder for you, next week, Saturday, December 11th, men's breakfast, 8 a.m., not here. It's going to be at the other building that we are seeking to purchase. Okay, We're going there because it, the whole situation needs some prayer. It's held up. But I tell you what, throughout this process, the number of times that I've thought, oh my goodness, if, this, if we could just do this, or if I could just take care of this, or God, if you could just do this. But he keeps telling us, just, would you just wait? Would you just wait? My timing is perfect. But it's a difficult thing sometimes to apply that to our own lives. But this morning, I want us to understand that just as God has worked in the perfect point in history, and Romans 5 tells us this as well. Paul writes there, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says at the right time, he did this for you. It wasn't just the, the fullness of the time, the right time that he came to the earth. It was at the absolute right time that he died on the cross. And just as he has worked at the perfect point in history, he is also working at the perfect point presently, even in your individual life. Paul, he writes in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing. No, he says confident. He doesn't just say, you know, I'm sort of wishy-washy about this. I'm not really sure if it's true. He says, no, I'm confident of this very thing. What is that thing? That he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to do that work, amen? He's not just going to stop. He's not just going to look and go, yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm not really sure how this is supposed to function, but we'll, we'll just call it good. No, not at all. He says, I've begun to work in you, and I'm going to finish that work until the day of Jesus, which then because of that, we can have the confidence, Christian, that God, you are so working in me that you know exactly who you've created me to be, how you want me to function, what you want me to look like, and that you are willing to do that work in me to continually change and transform me to make you, me more like you, and you're not going to stop until it's done. It's just important that we be willing to surrender to that work. He's at work. But here's the thing. Here's what this verse shows us. That there is a perfect point, not just in the past, not just presently, but in the future as well. Hebrews 10 verse 37 tells us, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. And here's, here's kind of a cool thing. Just as his first advent, so with his second, his second coming, we know how he will come. We know. First for his church, 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, 1 Thessalonians 3.10. First for his church, then with his church for all the world to see. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Revelation 19, verse 11 and 14. It's going to look a little different than his first coming. We know how he'll come. We know where he will come. Zechariah 14, verse 4. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. The disciples there, when Jesus ascended into heaven and they stood there watching, gazing into the heavens until he, they couldn't see Him anymore and the angels came and they said, why are you standing here staring up into heaven? And We'd be doing the same thing, not looking away until we knew for sure that we couldn't see anything anymore. And they said to Him, He's going to come in like manner. He's going to come back down on the Mount of Olives. We know how, we know where, and we know why. In John chapter 5, beginning in verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself, and has given Him authority to execute judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. We know how, we know where, we know why, but similar to his first advent, we know little of when. But of that day, Matthew 24, 36, and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Rest assured, he will come precisely when he means to. But I would pose the question for you this morning, could it be that we are in a time again, spiritually, culturally, politically, that might be conducive to the unfolding of these events. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, verse 1, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. There is another perfect point soon approaching. And just as before, God has an appointment on His calendar. And I wonder, as we look around at the world, do we find ourselves easily taken by the things that are going on rather than just trusting, God, you're in control. You are at work. I know that you're going to finish that work. And so, Lord, use me however you want to use me to bring glory unto yourself until that time. Because here's the thing, it's not just that perfect point for Him. There's one for each of us, too. In Hebrews in chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, we read, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin for salvation. The perfect point is coming when he will appear again. For some unto judgment and others unto life, the question becomes, what are you prepared for are you eagerly waiting for him knowing that christ offered himself for you for the forgiveness of your sins and you're ready to celebrate that today as we take communion or are you one who the holy spirit is drawing under repentance and saying you're not ready 
All those who have believed on Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins are welcome to partake of our communion table. But I would challenge us, I would encourage us here today, is, and again, as we consider these things over the next few weeks, to really not simply look back with awe at how God could work out so many circumstances in history to accomplish His plan, but to be willing to say, Lord, I know that You're that same God today who is still at work, still working, still moving, and that I trust You, Lord, with Your plan for my life. I trust your timing. I trust that you will work when you mean to work. And Lord, forgive me for the ways in which sometimes I'm prone to anxiety or I'm prone to fear or I'm prone to taking things into my own hand. But Lord, help me to just be surrendered to your plan for my life. To be faithful in following you, obedient. And perhaps if it's you here today or one who's watching online and you know, I'm, I'm not ready. If today were that day, I'm not ready. Then I urge you to get right with him today. Recognize who He is. Surrender your life to Him. Believe on Him for salvation and partake today. Partake of communion as a new creation. One who is eagerly awaiting His return. For the rest, may we recognize that as we partake together here today in intimate fellowship, koinonia fellowship, as we partake in the body and the blood of Christ, that we're looking back and celebrating what it is He's done, that we're looking inward and considering what He's doing in our life still and what He wants to do, and that, yes, we are looking forward with great anticipation for His return. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You so much for our time together here this morning, Lord. As we consider Your Word, we're grateful for it. And once again, Lord, we ask by Your Spirit that You would, Lord, bring necessary conviction, encouragement, whatever is needed, Lord, for our sanctification here today that you would do that work. But Lord, may we, Lord, as we go throughout this holiday season, Lord, not overlook the significance, Lord, of what you've done, how you've done it, how perfect you are, Lord, how perfect your plan is, how faithful you are, how perfect your timing is, Lord, and you're not done. You're not out of control. You're not surprised by what's going on in our world, Lord. You're not taken off guard by what's going on in our lives. You are the one who we can run to and with perfect peace trust, Lord, what you're doing and how it is that you're going to do it. That You are faithful in completing the work that you've begun. So, Lord, now as we take of communion, may we do so, Lord, in a way that's pleasing to you. Lord, draw our attention, Lord, to your faithfulness and to your perfect sacrifice we partake together as the body of Christ. We love you and praise you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.